Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Black again, black like I never left. Welcome to another episode of Black Arm of the Law. It's your boy, black, 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 blacker than ever. CP Carl Payne, the one and only mama, there go that man again. Mama said, don't stop, can't stop, won't stop. Mama say, mama say, mama kusa. What's up? Today's guest, this this man is doing big things. He's uh, currently a sheriff in the uh, Suffolk County area on the East Coast. Uh, Welcome to Black Arm of the Law. This is Stephen Thompson. What's up, brother? What up, man? So glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to chat for a little bit. Thank you, man. Thank you for being here. Now, what is your drink of choice today? Today, I'm knocking down some Christian Brothers brandy. Yeah, VS. Oh, good. Uh, I was campaigning for Elizabeth Warren last year. I was down in South Carolina, and they didn't have Mm. what I was for. And the cat showed up with this Christian brothers and I didn't know what it was. And I said, I tasted it and it was good. It went down smooth. So I go up to the bar and I said, what is that, man? He said, Christian brothers. And I've been drinking it ever since. Hello. Well, you know, I, I'm from South Carolina. So a lot of good things come out of South Carolina. You know what I'm saying? All right. All right. All right. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was born in a little small town called Clinton, South Carolina, man. Real small. Oh, man. Cheers to you, baby. Cheers to you. Cheers. Cheers, baby. Cheers. All right. So tell me how things came to be. Tell me a little bit about your journey. All right. So long story short, man, uh, I graduated from music and art, take two years off, go to work as a paralegal, as a matter of fact. And it was all good. But after about a year, year and a half of that, you know, life was it was basically the same thing every day. You go home, you hang out with your boys or I'd hang out with my girl. And after about a year and a half, I figured there had to be more to life than just this. And so uh, I applied to this program in uh, East Harlem called Park East. And uh, they brought us up to Boston to visit several schools. And I go to Boston College and uh, I walk in and I'm meeting with a woman named Evelina Higginbotham, who was super cool. And so she says, hey, would you like to go to B.C.? And I said, well, you know what? I did all right in high school, but uh, I understand, you know, you have to be like an academic rock star to go to BC, you know, and uh, she said, well, look, apply and see what happens. And so I said, I'll apply, but my mom can't afford it. I grew up in a single parent household in the projects uh, in, in the in Spanish Harlem. And I said, my mom can't afford the freight for this. And she said, we'll apply for financial aid. Now this was back in the day when the government was giving uh, schools money to recruit students of color. So I apply, I get in and, uh, I go to BC, well, because I'd been out for about a year and a half, two years, I had to go to a summer program basically as a refresher, okay? The refresher program was for either cats who had been out of school for a while or the chronically dumb, okay? And so we had a collection of like some real interesting folk up there, but it was 55 students of color. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a good experience, frankly. 
uh, graduated from BC, graduated from BC, and went into television production. That's how I know Ken Johnson. That's how I know Bart Phillips. And used to do a lot of video production and so on and so forth. Uh, fast forward in 2000, one of my college classmates, African-American female, called me up and said that she was uh, going to become the next sheriff. And would I come and run her communications department? And I actually didn't know. I'd tell you the God's honest truth. I didn't even know we had a sheriff. And I didn't know what the sheriff did. And I said, do they give you a horse? Because, you know, I'm back from the Bonanza days. I'm like, will you get a horse and a hat? What, what, what is the sheriff? <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I said, look, her name is Andrea. And I said, Andrea, I appreciate the opportunity, but I've never been in jail. I've never visited a jail. And so going to work in the jail and collect a paycheck just didn't strike my fancy. So I said, no, no, thanks. She called me back the second time. No, no, thanks. Third time she calls me back, she said, look, uh, I want you to go come down and meet the people in the uh, communications department, talk to them and see if we can work something out. I go down and they take me on a tour, Carl, and they take me to one of the units. And I'm standing on a tier, which is like a balcony, and I'm looking out over the balcony and I see about 80 brothers, mostly black and Latino. And I, to- I thought two things, man. I said uh, to myself, first, the first thing I thought about was the Middle Passage. Now, I hadn't been there. But I had learned about the Middle Passage when they brought blacks over from Africa. And this is what this looked like to me. A bunch of brothers slammed together in this room. And the second thing I thought was, look, I'm in a cat. I caught a couple of advantages. Life was pretty cool. I will, uh, I'll take the job. And I did. And this was back in, uh, 2002. And from that point forward, it's just been an upward trajectory, um, from doing that. I was then promoted three years later to the chief of external affairs. And then in 2013, she left to go and work for the governor. And the governor appointed me uh, to become the sheriff. Now, here's the deal. Um, I think that those of us that can help, I think it's incumbent upon us to help. And when I look at all these brothers and sisters in, 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 in jail, I figure something's wrong with this dynamic. And because I didn't come up through criminal justice, um, my lens was a little bit different because I'd done a lot of work in the community. I'd done a lot of work in the media. I saw it differently, you see. And um, so I thought I had some great innovative ideas that I wanted to bring forth to help cats out, you know, to get them out and get that continuum of care. One thing about a quasi-militaristic environment like a jail is that they're reluctant to change. And so these ideas that I would come up with, they would say, well, no, we're not going to do that. And I would say, well, why? And they would say... Because we've never done it that way, which I never understood. I was like, what are you talking about? Just because you've never done it that way means you're not going to do it that way. But I had to deal with this until I became sheriff. And when I was appointed sheriff in 2013, I was like, hey, how you like me now? Now we're going to do some of that stuff that I've been talking about doing. And basically what it was that I wanted to do, one, we, we created a magazine called Not Beyond Hope. that gave the inmate population a voice, poetry, short stories, art. Um, I created a program called Family Matters where we, we don't deal just with the inmates. We deal with their families, particularly guys and ladies that have come from a very dysfunctional household. They don't know where the social service agencies are that can help them. They don't even know that they exist. And so I felt that why don't we reach out and help the families? Because once the dude gets out, we don't want to send him back to chaos, right? Doesn't make any sense to me because he's just going to come back, you know? And so... We've had an opportunity to do a lot of that. But what I didn't know 
was just how much politics is involved with this sort of stuff. Now, you know, I'm kind of a political gadfly, you know, but I've never been steeped in politics. And so once I got my arms around the fact that this was a very political environment, I then went to grad school and got a master's in policy so that I could understand what I got myself into. And so it's been a fantastic run call, frankly, to work with cats to try to help them, you know, improve their station in life. You know, I mean, I think that's the rent that we pay to be citizens on the planet. You know, you got to reach back and you got to help, you know, and, and that's kind of, oh, and the other thing I will say this is coming from New York, coming up here to Boston, um, Boston's a very nice place, but it's, <laughs> oh, okay, just real slow. And so being an aggressive cat from uh, New York City, from Harlem, it was like, you know, I'm looking at cats and they look like chicken legs to me. You know, I'm like, I know I can make something out of this shit here. You know, um, so I said, fuck it. Let me do what I got to do. And it's been a good run. It's been a very good run. I enjoy it. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at the possibility of possibly running for Congress uh, in 2024. You know, that's how much I'm, I'm really vibing with politics. You know, so it's, it's all good. It's all good. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so let's dig a little bit into a couple of things. First, I want mm -hmm. you to talk about, uh, we're going to come back to policy. Uh, yep. we're going to come back to politics and policy. We're going to come back to that, but I want to talk a little bit about your experience. Cause you said, one of the things you said that struck a chord with me was, and, and, and I talk about this a lot is that when you're from and of the community, you know, and I think that's the, the issue with policing, right? Sometimes when you are from and of the community, you're able to, and I don't like to use the word police, but the relationship between you and the community is a little stronger. The bond is a little bit better. You know how to deal with things because actually, you, you know, you, you have a different, uh, uh, a lens, as you say, you know, there's a different viewpoint and, and you, you understand things differently and you know how to finesse or handle things with care in terms of like, okay, this is a mental health situation. This is not a criminal situation or because we know each other, we respect each other differently. And a lot of the times the people who are policing the communities aren't from and or of the community. And that's been a big issue. So, so one of the things I wanted to talk about when you joined, uh, and, and, and when you came into this, you came into it with a different uh, perspective. Talk to me a little bit about, because in the 80s, right, that's when the crack hit. That's when the crack epidemic hit. And, and we now know uh, where it came from. We know how it got into our neighborhoods. We understand the whole structure, the infrastructure, and we saw what it did firsthand to our neighborhood, as well as there's a lot of people in jail. I mean, you know, disproportionately black people are always locked up or, or, or given way harsher sentences for crimes or the same crimes that uh, whites and their, uh, their counterparts are given less or, or, or should I say slaps on the hand. Um, and, you know, even to this day, we have brothers and sisters incarcerated for things that that their sentences definitely don't. The time doesn't fit the crime, you know, and now that marijuana is becoming legalized and, and a lot of these things, a lot of these changes are happening. I mean, you know, hell, we got some of the best CEOs <laughs> behind right. bars. So and, and, and just in general, the crack epidemic has messed up so many families. You know what I'm saying? It, it has totally destroyed the, the black uh, unit, the black family unit in the infrastructure. So so talk to me a little bit, a little bit about 
what that was like transitioning and then seeing that, like you said, seeing that having a different lens uh, going into this uh, thing and, and trying to implement policy, trying to implement changes where into a system that was never built. Well, that was specifically built to not have that, if that makes sense, what I'm saying. Right. So first of all, crack didn't just destroy families. Crack destroyed communities. OK. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a larger picture than just the, the individual or the family. It's the community. I mean, crack wiped out scores of brothers and sisters. OK. Kind of like what happened back with heroin. You know, I'm old enough to remember when uh, heroin was deep in Harlem man, and 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 when the Panthers were doing their thing and how heroin was introduced uh, in, into that community. Look, when you talk about the criminal justice system, and I say this often, people say to me that the criminal justice system is broken, right? Uh, I counter with the criminal justice system isn't broken. The criminal justice system was built to be punitive and punishing. All right, let's get that straight. It was built to have their knee, okay, like my man in uh, Minnesota, to have their knee on the necks of individuals, mostly black and brown, and mostly brothers, frankly, you see? And so we have to do something about that dynamic, you know? And so coming into this line of work, particularly where I came from prior to uh, working in corrections, uh, I do have a different lens. I do see this differently. And so what people will often say to me, Carl, is, you know, you speak, you're so, when you speak, when you talk, when you stand in front of people, you're so real. You know, and I'm like, no, it's not a question. It's not a thing about being real. It's just factual, you know, factual. You know, you guys have come up in a system that um, has its own culture. And that culture is does not embrace a lot of individuals. And so the challenge with trying to change that culture and up here, the, the jail, the facility I run is 300 years old. And so when you talk about trying to change a 300-year-old culture, it's not the easiest thing to do. So what do you do in that respect, Carl? What you do is you hire a lot of brothers and sisters, frankly. You know, when we got there, um, my inmate population, which numbers somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 people uh, on a daily basis, 65% of that population is black or Latino. Conversely, or juxtaposed to my labor force at the time, we had about 18, 19% of uh, people of color. And so the first thing that we did was in each one of our academies, and we have two to three a year, we have said that at least 50% of the academy has to be of color. Then we also said 50% of the academy has to live in the county that the facility is located in. And the reason for that is this. If you got a cat that is coming down from Maine or New Hampshire to work in our facility, they're going to talk to these brothers and sisters in whatever they, whatever way they want to because they ain't going to bump into dude in the supermarket or in the movie theater, right? But if you live in Dorchester and he lives in Dorchester and you treat him like shit, well, you might bump into this cat on the outside. Then what? You know, he might tighten your ass up. And so you're going to comport yourself a lot differently when you talk to him. We don't stand as judge and jury. Guys and ladies have already gone through that process. Our thing is care custody and control. Care, custody, and control. And when I talk to cats about that, I start with the word custody. When I explain it to them, and I say, look, if you look up the word custody, there's two definitions in the dictionary. And the first is imprisonment. The second 
is guardianship. And so that's the world that I'm living in, is that we are going to try to embrace these brothers and sisters, black or white. I don't care what color they are. And I don't really care how they got to my facility. My thing is to try to help them so that they don't come back. And the recidivism rate up here, and I think it is across the country too, it's 46%. So we know, like this past Friday, when, uh, you know, cats left to go home after they've done their time, we know in three to six months they're coming back if there's not some sort of something to disrupt that recidivism. And so that's what we try to do. We try to put things in place to, to disrupt that. Now, you talk about crack. What we've had to do, Carl, is this. I have a full-blown mental health unit. I have a full-blown substance abuse unit. Now, I'm we so glad that you mentioned that. I'm going yeah, to come back to that. Absolutely. Okay. We weren't built for that, but just out of necessity, we have to have that. You know, in fact, sometimes, you know, uh, we talk about the fact that we don't have, like, your garden variety bank robber anymore. What we have is people that really have some serious health issues, and they should be in a facility outside of a correction facility to tend to that. But the le legislators, in their infinite wisdom, don't put enough money on the street to have enough beds to take care of those cats. And so they do something to either take care of their habit or to address their illness, something illegal, and they go to jail. And so I think there are a fair amount of cats that shouldn't be there. And I'll close by saying this. You referenced the, the whole marijuana thing. I think it's really interesting the number of brothers and sisters that are in jail for muling uh, marijuana, and now the government is going to make truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of money off of marijuana. So let me see. Hmm, why the fuck don't we let them go? All right? Get them out of prison. Get them out of the jail. I mean, come on. What do you want? What? You know? So Big Brother's going to make this all this money, right? Off of something that got all of these cats caught up in the trick. So we really have to look at this dynamic a lot differently. And I'm glad to see that the Biden-Harris administration is talking about legalizing marijuana, which, by the way, William Randolph Hearst talked to his boys back in the day because he was a publisher and he didn't want hemp to be out there. And so he talked his boys into making that an illegal substance, which then led to the incarceration of scores of people. And I, so I know I said that was my last thing, but I've had a couple of drinks, so I'm going to say one more thing. The whole thing that, that when Reagan, I'm sorry, when Nixon dropped the line about the war on drugs, really? Seriously? I mean, who are we fooling here? The war on drugs? I mean, come on. Come on. You know, this is a way. Well, well, see, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing, man. People, what people don't realize, or when people don't know their history, as you said, and when they don't do their homework and research, they don't understand how the plan was set in place to begin with. So, yeah, it, it's kind of like the same thing that's going on today, which is a whole nother show with regards to uh, mm. this COVID and, and the rest of the agenda that's being pushed. Uh, there's a whole nother, you know, it, it's it's the same game plan though, right? So I'm gonna put this thing into effect, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna scare the hell out of white. America and those who, who, you know, a lot of the policy and lawmakers, right? And I'm going to say, oh, you don't want this in your backyard because here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. When it, when it got in their backyard, then it was an issue in terms, it wasn't a criminal issue. It was a, oh, they need help issue. Right. 
You you, right. you feel me? Because now it's in your house. Now it's now now the, the same crimes and the same things that are being com- committed and created, or it, it, it's it's a, it's an issue that needs it's an epidemic that needs to be dealt with in ter- with, with kid gloves mm-hmm. because it's in your house now, right? So you know, whereas back in the day, you know, if you're using, oh, then it's you need help, but you still have the drugs. You still have them on you, whether you're selling them, using them or whatever. And so at, at, not to mention you gave them to me to sell. You gave them to me to sell. You told me, hey, this is your way. So, yeah, that's a show for a whole nother day. But you, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, and so I think the, the, the next question I want to say, though, you know, that you said something interesting about getting more uh, of us to join and to come in. Right. How how do we change their mindset before they come in? I, last week I did an interview with a cat that was very interesting. And one of the problems is so many of us have already been brainwashed. So many of us have already been, uh, um, I don't know, I'm going to create a Don King word here, societyized. <laughs> You know, so many of us have have drank the damn Kool-Aid that even once we enter the program, we still are in that same mindset. Right. So how do we change that part? On one side of the coin, we may have drank the Kool-Aid, but on the other side of the coin, this has been going on for so long. And as you know, uh, images, uh, advertising, moving pictures, it gets into your psyche and your subconscious. And so when you are shown like every time they say the word poor, right? They always show a picture of a person of color. Well, you know what? There's a whole lot of poor white people, but they always show a person of color when they say poor. And so you see these images over and right. over. Right. Adopt a baby. Meanwhile, you got flies on the eyelids and all of that. For just five cents a month, you too. <laughs> right. You see? And so we have been, it's been ingrained in our psyche that we are less than, you see. And look, if you go way, way back, look at welfare, okay? They jump out with welfare and they say, well, you know, we'll give you money, but oh, by the way, the dude can't be in the household. The guy can't be there. Now we're gonna give you this change, but the guy can't be there. Okay, so to me, that was systematic in breaking up the family unit, you know? So you need this assistance but you are breaking up the family unit. And so as you go forward, days, weeks, months, years, decades of this, people just get used to it. If you look at a lot of our movies and music videos, being in jail is fucking glorified. Like that's some fucking thing to do. You know, it's like, like I talk to a lot of young cats and it's almost as if going to jail is your, uh, your passage, your rite of passage into manhood. Who the fuck are we kidding here? You know, I mean, cats are so used to guys going and women now going to jail that that dynamic is all fucked up. And so we have to change. We have to change that mindset. Now, that's happening. That's happening. But that's why you see cats like Trump, you know, like so we had Obama. Right. And that was great. We had Obama for eight years and everybody thought we had this kumbaya moment and that the, 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 the country gets it right we almost had to have a Trump follow Obama so they could, so people could see that, no, no, things haven't changed. Things are as bad as they have always been. And so now we have to deal with that. And so that's how we're living right now, Carl, is that 
we've got all these white supremacists and we've got all this prejudice and, and vitriol and and I don't know what's up with the Republicans. I mean, I just don't get these cats, you know, at all. I don't understand wh- where they're going. But if we don't check ourselves, we're going to wreck ourselves. We're going to become a fucking third world nation if, in fact, we can't figure out how to change this dynamic. And so they don't want black people to do that. Right? I think they'd rather blow the place up than to let black people run us. But, oh, by the way, when the census comes out, and definitely by 20, 2040, you're going to see that there are more people of color in the country. And so that privilege that a lot of folk have had for low these 400 years or what have you, now that they're losing that, they're going to fight vehemently. They're going to fight very aggressively to hold on to that. But at well, the end hopefully. of the day, you know, ho- hopefully, hopefully we'll see, we'll see that. And, you know, hopefully they'll tell the truth with regards to that, you know. Um, they're not going to tell the truth. Of course, of course not. Of course not. And it's not a hopefully thing. It's going to happen because there are more interracial uh, coupling. Right. There are more immigrants coming into the country. And so just by the fact of those two things alone, that the nature of who's in the country is going to change and it's browning. And that's just the way it is. And so they're going to fight desperately to hold on to what they have. But at the end of the day, Carl, they're going to lose it. They're going to lose it, bro. They're going to lose it. You know, and so they're going to try to put as many of us in jail and do whatever they have to do uh, before that happens. Frankly, that's how I see it, you know. Well, I think I think we need to put it. Well, okay, I'll get to that. I'll get to that because <laughs> you touch on so many things that I want to address, from the privatizing of of, of our jail systems to uh, so many things I want to touch on there. But we're going we're going to keep it moving. Tell me a story. Tell me a real story. You know, which relates to so that people can better understand. Um, you know, uh, how, how to get a po- get to a positive level. You know, tell me something that that may have happened or transpired throughout your your your, your career or even in your personal life, right? So that people can have a better understanding of how we need to level up. So listen, all right. So I entered this uh, this 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 line of work back in two thousand and two, and in two thousand and three, I have a conversation with one of the brothers who's in our care. And I say, dude, you know, you're what we call a frequent flyer. You keep coming back and you keep coming back. I said, talk to me, man. What's going on here? And he says, look, he said, my father was in the life. He said, my father, my grandfather was in the life. He says, I get the fact that criminality is not what we're supposed to do. But he said, this is all I know how to do. I dropped out of school in the sixth grade. Okay, so I got to put food on the table. I got to put clothes on my kids backs. This is all I know how to do. I steal. I do what I have to do. And, you know, i got to tell you, Carl, my heart went out to the brother because he was being very forthright with me. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm a guy who didn't go through that. Okay, I'm a guy who has had certain advantages. I guess the Lord had a different plan for me. But there are so many of us that have gotten caught in that particular trap that we got to do something about it. And that's when I just made it my mission, frankly, to do as much as I can to, on one side of the coin, keep our youth out of the criminal justice system, and on the back end, interrupt that cycle of recidivism with people coming back. And that that lesson, in that, that conversation I had in, in, in uh, 2003 was just so illuminating to me that, you know, our public schools are, are challenged, our societies are challenged. And the biggest criminal of all, if you ask me, that people really either don't want to talk about or can't deal with is poverty, frankly. You know, 
And poverty is a, a way of holding people black and white. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is down. And so until we can address how we get around that, we're, we're, we're just we're fighting an uphill battle. So is, was there anything that ever happened to you personally, though? You know, what what affected you? What 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 impacted you to make a change? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I want I want to hear about something that 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 definitely resonated with you in a sense that it was personal. So as I mentioned to you, I grew up in uh, uh, in Harlem, in the projects. I grew up in a single-parent household. Now, back in the day, we didn't really talk about depression, okay? And my mother fell into a depression after my mom and dad divorced, okay? And what does that mean for me? It means that in, in a certain instance, I became what's called parentified, meaning that now as a child... I am now the parent. Okay, let me let me let me let me break this down. Uh, welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Hello. Yes, okay. I I know exactly. And so and see, that's why that's why that's why I need you to say this, bro. Because a lot of a lot of people don't understand. You know what I mean? And and it just sounds like rhetoric or politics or bullshit. It's like we have to be able to tell them, yo, this is what it was for me personally. You understand? Exactly. And then and then a lot of these listeners who were me, a lot of people who don't even realize that that was me too. That, that was me too. That, That's what they're exactly. going to relate to. You understand but, what I'm saying? But, but let me tell you this. So this is what happened. So my parents divorced when I think I was seven, eight, nine, whatever. One day I'm 12 years old and my mother says to me, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. And she had a boyfriend named Johnny. And I said, you're going to have a baby with Johnny? And I'm thinking, Johnny is not daddy material. <laughs> so, as to me, no, you love this. She'll, she said to me, no, the only person I would have a baby for is your father, my father. So I said, wait, 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 hold on, hold on check this out. My father, who has since been re-fucking-married, that dude, you're going to have a baby for that dude? So I said, so when dad comes over on Saturdays, Gives me a couple of dollars and say, yo, kid, you know, go outside and have a good time. You two are like, <laughs> he's laying the pipe. I mean, what, what are we talking about here and shit, right? Go get and me some so, new ports in a, in a Colt 45. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So she says, yeah. Uh, and I said, wow. So now, fast forward, she has my sister and she's got a drinking problem. Okay. This is how she dealt with her demons, her depression. So she was what you would call a functioning alcoholic. She'd go to work every day, come home, make sure that we we were fed, we did our homework, and then she would drink herself to sleep. And this went on for like years, Carl, years. And so when we go back to that being parentified, I actually not only had to take care of my little sister, right, but I had to take care of my mother too. You know, there were so many nights that I would actually have to pick my mother up and put her in bed. I'm 13, 14 fucking years old, dude, you know? And so, but, you know, at that point, I'm the man of the house, okay? And so these are the things that we have to do. And like you just said, welcome to your world. There's so many cats like me and you that have gone through the same thing. The question is, how do we function that way without getting in trouble? Now, I will say this about my mother. When my mother would say to me, boy, if you get yourself in trouble, I will kick your ass. And I believed her. And actually, Carl, Carl, I'll tell you the truth, back in the day when you could beat your kid's ass, she did a couple of times, frankly, you know. And But here's the thing. 
where my boys would do stupid shit like uh, they want to steal cars or mule drugs. Two reasons that I didn't do that. One, because um, it was the wrong thing to do. But actually, more importantly, I didn't want to embarrass my mother. If my mother had to come to jail to bail me out, Carl, that was probably the, the worst thing that could have possibly ever happened. And so, therefore, oh, well, number three is she'd have fucked me up. Okay, so I, I, I steered away from that, 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 that kind of sense of criminality. But that is factored into what I do today as the sheriff because I fucking get it. I, I understand just how you could fall into that despite the fact that you don't want to, the fight, despite the fact that it wasn't planned, sometimes shit just happens. And so when you ask about my personal experience, that is the personal experience that governs my life. And it is why I am who I am today because of those life lessons when I was a kid. So let me ask you this, though, right? Yep. And, and, yep. and this is coming from a place, you know, obviously personal as well. Did it... I want to know your mindset at the time, right? Because the one thing about black people is that we're resilient. We are the most resilient people on the planet. And I want to know your mindset at the time. Was it one where you felt like, was it just a natural thing to step up? Right. Uh, because again, I went through the same stuff, right? Like my mom, my mother had me when she was uh, still in high school. Like, mm -hmm. so I think she missed her graduation because I was being born. Like, you know, she was graduating from high school at that time. And so because she had me at such a young age, we went through a lot of things to, we, we grew up together, if that makes any sense. And, and, and so even when I was in school, you know, when she went, she chose to go back to college. So she, I remember she was working like two jobs and still going to night school just so she could get her degree. Right. So, of course, now we are latchkey kids and now we are, become, you know, we're the man of the house as well. Right. And, but she was such a, a force to be reckoned with because she would get home for work, fix the dinner, iron our clothes for the next day and be out to to night school. You know, but I remember she would call me from work and I'd be helping her with homework. You know, we'd be helping each other with homework. I'm helping you do your college homework. You help, you know. And so it, 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 but but the point is. So this is this becomes a normal thing, right? This dysfunction, this this normalizes things where it's you know, and so does it. But did it ever become like where you felt like you owed it? You know what I mean? Like like when you step into these roles, sometimes you step up and you you know, or did you feel like why I got to be doing this, right? Why am I the one, you know, that's left holding this bag, you know, and and or you know. Do you understand what I'm what I'm trying to get at? Does it make sense what I'm saying? What I'm what I'm what I'm really trying to say is, is some people do things right, like you know, a lot of times, a lot of these kids, even Tupac used to talk about it, right? So you feel like you owe this thing to your mother, to your family. You feel like you owe something because you were put in a position that you should have been put in to begin with, right? Right, right, right. And sometimes it can take you to a dark place too, right? Like you said, where the guy was like, yo, this is all I know how to do. Why? Because I was forced to do this at an early age, and that's all I know. Right. So let me break it down to you like this. No, I never felt like I was put upon. I didn't feel like 
that I was at some sort of disadvantage, I felt proud. And the reason I felt proud is because I could do this shit. Okay. So when you talk about latchkey kids, I had a key. My mother gave me a key when I was in the third grade. And so she said, look, dude, I got to go to work. I got to make some money to take care of us. And I need you to be responsible. Come home from school and do what needs to get done. You know, so it was almost called like a fucking partnership to tell you the God's honest truth. So, no, I didn't feel put upon. I felt like, you know, I'm the man of the house. Shit, I'm the dude, man. I mean, this works for me because I'm, I'm holding up my end bargain, right? But, he, but, you, but let me tell you this story. Let me tell you this story. You'll love this. You'll fucking love this. Watch this shit, okay? <laughs> the only cast that used to get an allowance, okay, when I'm growing up, right? And I remember one day I lived on, a, I lived on the 17th floor in our project. And one day, I'm on the elevator with my man, Allie and Calvin. And now every day when I came home from school, I had to do chores, you know, either wash the dishes or do whatever the fuck needed to get done. And I'm looking at these two dudes, right? And I said to these cats, I said, listen, I said, I'll tell you what, fellas. If, now, this was way back in the day, Carl. I said, if I give you guys 50 cent a piece to fucking wash and do my chores, would you fucking do it? Much to my fucking surprise, they said yes, okay? And so I kicked these dudes a little pocket change, and I'm sitting there watching fucking Green Acres or some shit on TV, and these cats are cleaning my fucking house. I'm like fucking in middle school, okay? And I'm thinking to myself, I like this shit. I like running shit. This works for me, you know? I like being in control. And so that is kind of how I was indoctrinated to think about when you are faced with adversity. So I never felt put upon or depressed or why me or woe is me. I felt this was yeah. a challenge to rise to that shit, man. And that's yeah, what I and, did. And, 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 and I can relate to that. You know, when that happens, it, it's like it, it, it builds character and it's either who you are or it's not who you are. And that's the thing. It's like, yeah, the same thing for me. It was like, I, <laughs> I, right, right. <laughs> and quite honestly, you know, it's it's that sort of thing, that sort of adversity is that sort of uh, pressure, if you will, that forms leaders. That's this kind of stuff that later in life, you know, which is why you learn at an early age how to become a, a, a leader, you know, how to develop the skills that's necessary, you know, to take you to the next level of your a stage of your life or career. I want to jump into something real quick. Uh, we touched right. on. So what, let me ask you something. What do you think is the next step that we take, right, after justice is no longer being served in the court system, right? Yeah. When we continue to see our law enforcement go unpunished, because this is this is my segment about accountability, right? What's the next step that we take? Law enforcement continues to go unpunished for the behavior, and, 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 and we even see the, the president, the former president, goes unpunished, you know, for pretty much inciting a riot. <laughs> yeah. I mean— at the nation's capital. What's what's the next step? So here's the thing, man. Trump, and I think it's very interesting that Trump and this pandemic happened kind of at the same time. And what comes from that is two things. Trump, I don't credit him with much of anything, but I will say this. Trump has gotten people to really begin to embrace civics again. Frankly, the understanding of how community and government work together, you see, 
And that was something that, you know, particularly in our public schools, at least up here in Boston, you know, when it, when it's tough budgetary times, the things that were cut out of the school curriculum was civics, physical education, and the arts, you see. But Trump has said to a lot of people, not verbally, but by his actions, that we need to re-engage. We need to understand government and how that shit works. And so right now, up in Boston, we've got a mayor's race that's happening. And we've got, uh, we've got one Latino, uh, brother. We've got one Latin brother. We've got three, uh, um, we've got three, uh, African American sisters and one that's a mixed race young lady, uh, mother's Irish, father's Tunisian. Now this is in fucking Boston, dude, where we've got all these people of color running for mayor because they're sick of what's happening with our government. See, the legislators that we have hired to go to these state houses and go to the Capitol in D.C. to do the people's business, well, they seem to have fucking forgotten that we've hired them to do the people's business. And so now the people are saying, okay, let us take our government back. And there's a lot of folk of color and a lot of women that are getting in the game now because they see that although they've noticed, they've known for quite some time that it was unfair, that spark, that catalyst to make them get up and get out there and campaign or be campaign managers or comms directors or finance directors for a candidate, they now see that, that, that they need to do that. Now, the pandemic, the pandemic has shown principally white people just how unfair it has been for folk of color. We've already always known it. But I'm like, I'm sure like you, I've talked to white cats and they think, oh, dude, everything is yeah, it's a beautiful world for all of us. Well, fuck you, dude. It's not beautiful all of, for all of us. It's beautiful for you. It's fucked up for me. OK, but the pandemic has shown them that it is fucked up for us. You know, and so I find I think that, you know, that thing about um, what does that say? Um, 2020 hindsight or hindsight of 2020, whatever. So we had all this shit happen in 20 fucking 20. All right. And that has opened the eyes of a lot of people to say, oh, fuck. So when you say, what's the next step? The next step is, it's our turn. It's our turn. We're not going to ask you, can we get in the game? We're not going to wait for you to invite us to get into the game. We're getting in the fucking game. Like it or not, here we come. And so, you know, like you got you to tip your, your cap to like Stacey Abrams, right, down in Georgia. Well, that is going to replicate itself across the country because she has shown right. that if right. people get together and work like that, we can change the dynamic. That's what's about to happen. And that's why and, these Republicans are fucking tripping. Yeah. And, and it's it is it is on a grassroots level as well as in the uh, in the uh, in the office, you know, you know, because she didn't just sit there and say she literally got out and showed, OK, I'm going door to door. I'm out here as well saying, yo. This is what needs to happen. And uh, I think you're right. And and I said this to a couple of people I know. I said the same thing. I said, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be casualties of war. Unfortunately, there has to have something bad. I, I, I said, here's the good thing about all of this. People are going to say, oh, this is. I said, no, this is the best thing that could have ever happened. I said, because it has realigned as well as set a new path. For the change which will ultimately benefit you and me because <laughs> when even when those those white folks I was like let them white folks storm the capitol building leave them fools alone because that they helping us right now shut up let them go 
Oh my God! I can't believe it! Oh my God! Did you see that? They would have never. You damn right! They would have never. They would have never allowed that if it was us. So let them make the fucking change. Let it happen. Sit your ass down. Let them goofy motherfuckers run in that building, and and call and, and let it, let the world see what the fuck we've been saying forever. Leave it alone. Right. That's right. That's right. Let it go. So, <laughs> you know, and like I said, unfortunately, you know, whether it's it's storms in Texas. You know, in this privatized state yeah. where now you have this natural disaster that showed, you know, you know, <laughs> hey, this ain't right. <laughs> this ain't right. So, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that happen that sheds light that has that creates the change. You know, unfortunately, there's some casualties and some negative things that has to happen for it to happen. But ultimately, it's it's for the betterment or for the good, you know. And that's that's the silver so-called silver lining. All right, switching gears for a second. It was reported that a retired NYPD cop was accused of attacking a Capitol police officer with a flagpole. Cop on cop crime. Right. In today's time, not only do civilians have to be wary of violence against them, it seems like cops also have to be wary. <laughs> it seems as if the oath taken to protect and serve only applies when it's convenient or when concurrent with the individual's personal agenda. Many agendas are positive, but what about the growing percentage of those whose agendas are not? What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, it's funny. When you said uh, cop on cop, the first thing that came to my, my mind was black on black crime. Okay? Because you hear that often, black on black crime. Which is the stupidest but- statement I've ever heard in my life. Okay. I just All want right. to say that I don't care how you feel about it or anyone else. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Okay. Crime is crime. White on white, yeah. black on black, black on white. It's the same thing. We, we, you know, it's, it's consistent across the board, but they give it a name and I, I understand why they give it a name. Of course. That's their out. That's their out. So what this has done is just shown just how many white supremacists are in uh, policing, Right. And just how apparently easy it is to kind of fall into a cult-like state of mind. You know, Trump, frankly, is the ringleader of his own personal cult. And all of these people have bought into what it is that he's saying because I go back to the fact that the country is browning. And so he wants to talk about immigrants. He wants to talk about black folk. He wants to talk about Latinos, right? And all of these folk that, look, what, we, what we're living in right now, Carl, is a, a plutocracy, where you have all these people up here with a lot of dough, and then you got all these people down here with no dough. And then you got that, 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 that kind of vanishing middle. And so the folk up here with the dough have got the folk down here with no dough fighting each other for crumbs, you see. And so when I hear what you just read, what you just said about, you know, a cop, you know, beating another cop with a flagpole, um, I'm not surprised. Look, I watched that. I watched that shit in real time when it was happening, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, check this out. Ain't this crazy? You see, now, like you said, if it was a bunch of black people, there'd be a bunch of dead black people right now. okay? but it was a bunch of white people. And that just further shows just how uneven, how inequitable our society is, 
Because they would have waxed it. I mean, you got cops taking pictures with these fucking people, man. They're taking fucking selfies with them. Well, well here's what? the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, you saw that. You saw. Here's the thing. You saw. You saw based when. I mean, look, when Farrakhan went to the Capitol, he went with 10 people and they had a damn National Guard up there. Right. You know, before he even got there, when we said we was coming to just march or even have a peaceful sit in, you know, they had the same uh, situation. So they knew what was happening. They knew it was coming down and they didn't do anything. They they were prepared. They knew what was happening. They knew it wasn't like they didn't know what was about to happen. Yeah, well, you know, look, I go back to the fact that if it were black people, they would have waxed us. It was white people, so they didn't, okay? But the bigger issue here is what, like you just said a moment ago, what happens next? Okay, Exactly. What next? And what happens next is that folk of color be more engaged with their state politics, their local county, city, state politics, and their federal politics. We need more people to look like you and me and your lady and my lady occupying these seats in government. And until we do that, it's not going to be a demonstrable change, you see. But I think that's happening. I think, Look, at Kemp stole that governorship from Stacey Abrams. He fucking stole it, okay? But Stacey, from what I understand, I don't know her, I've never met her, but she could have gone into the Biden administration. But no, what did she do? She started a movement for voting. And I believe that in the next election, I think she's going to run for governor. I hope she's going to run for governor. And I think she's going to fucking win, you see. And that's just going to continue that ripple. You know how when you throw a, a rock into the pond and it's got that ripple effect? Boom. That was that ripple. She threw that stone into that pond. And that ripple effect is going to have more of us getting into politics, changing policy, you see. But it ain't going to be easy. I think the thing you said uh, uh, that I want to address is when when Obama came in office, just like now, you know, we, we think, oh, Kamala's in office and, you know, people get people get comfortable, right? They think, oh, here's the change or here's what's going to. No. And the problem with black folks is we get complacent, easy. And, and, and it's and we fall back into that lull, back into that sense of complacency, which it's kind of like, OK, I'm going to march for two weeks. I want to make a lot of noise for three weeks. And then I'm not going to say anything else. So there has to be a level of consistency and a lot of skin in the game, like you said. So it can't be a situation now. We got to keep our feet and our knees on the neck of injustice. We have to keep our knees on the neck of this system right now. I mean, for the next 30, 40, 50 years, because you people don't understand that that's what it takes. We can't let one moment go by and think that that's it. Okay, now we're off to the races. No. Yes, we might be off to the races, but are you in the race? Are you in the race? Oh, let me push back on you. Let me let me push back on you a bit. And I go back to what I said about Obama being president. And we almost had to have Trump as president. And so when you talk about complacency among folk of color and women, I don't think they're going to fall back into that aura of complacency because they see what they could have had under Obama. And then they did see what we could really, 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 really lose under Trump. And now they know that we know that 
the only way we make a change is to get in the game. And so I really don't think, now look, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, first of all, but I really don't think that we're going to fall back into that aura of complacency because it's been demonstrated and shown to the world just how unfair this shit is, you see. And so I think that folk of color are going to continue to rise up. But here's the other thing. Now, I used to be a stockbroker back in the 80s for a bunch of years. We got to get our money straight, Carl. We got to get our fucking money straight. I'm glad you said that because economics is what runs all of this because we could, I mean, it's a great plan. It's a great plan. But if we don't have the economics behind what you were saying with regards to putting our people in office and putting our people in these positions, because the only thing that makes a change or makes a difference is when you're affecting the economics of something. That's right. That's right. So speak it's, on that. Please speak yeah. on that. So, so, so look at, you know, I mean, I still, I still manage my own account and stuff. Um, and I talked, I don't advise anybody because if you lose your money, you ain't going to come fuck me up, you know. But I do talk about the fact that people need, you know, you feel me, right? But people need to understand just how important finances are and how important it is to have a financial plan is, you see. And so without that, like you just said, without the commerce, without the dough, without the cash, it's all fucking talk. But I think that People are waking up to all of the different facets of what's going to move us forward as a people. So one is policy, one is politics, and the other is finance, you see. And if we don't get our money straight, if we don't start, if we don't stop running up our credit card debt and all that bullshit. Now, I have no credit card debt. I have, the only thing that I owe money on is my fucking house. And I don't even owe much on that because I did the 15 year plan where I'm paying this sucker off early. So by virtue of my job, my phones are paid for, my car is paid for, so I ain't got debt there. When I get my credit card bill comes in, I pay that shit off all, of, all, all the, the entire thing when it comes in. Sometimes it hurts, but that's the way we have to look at this. We have to be fiscally responsible. And if we're not, then we're fucked, you see. And so I think these are the lessons that we're learning. See, white people have had those benefits. Like when you look at the GI Bill when cats came back from Vietnam, do you know when the GI Bill... Carl, that black people couldn't didn't didn't have the advantages that white people had with the the, the GI Bill. Yes. White people had it, go to school, yes. a house, but black people couldn't. But owning property, real estate, is that kind of one of that first steps in building wealth. You see, and we didn't have that. I say this all the time. I, I, I pre, you're preaching to the choir. I preach about this all the time, man. That's going to be a whole separate segment. Uh, a sidebar segment of 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 what this podcast is going to be at some point just just talking about the health and wealth aspect of us as a as a people and how that's only going to add to the continuance of our growth. Hey, Carl, if you don't mind, let me can I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question. Oh, please. You know, please. You know so, so you know, you 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 have made a name for yourself uh <clears throat> excuse me, in the media a lot of people know you. Um, you're good at what you do. You're great at what you do. But if you don't mind, just mm -hmm. talk to us, whoever's listening, about actually being in the inside of that big media machine, right? And how mm -hmm. it goes forward. And are we as people getting the messages or are we being lulled to sleep by the messages that media is coming forth with? I think that uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, I'm creating these different platforms such as this one. Absolutely, we're being lulled to sleep. 
because we've been programmed and and I want to say programmed we've been programmed to be complacent we've been programmed to be complicit to be uh to, you know hey do this oh well they said do this or this is what we're supposed to do we we you know it's this is this has been you know for i mean since before i got here since before i was on the planet this has been the thing and and I saw it happening with this COVID situation and I've seen it happening with the Trump administration. And I was like, you know, so how can I best be of service to my community and to my people with my with my what's been given to me? Right. So if God entrusted in me, he, 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 he put this thing in me. He gave me the talent. Right. But the purpose isn't the. the, the my purpose, I'm supposed to use my talent for my purpose. So what gift I've been given, I have to share. And, and what that means is information and information as well. And so therefore, if I've been afforded a platform, if I've been given a soapbox, then I have to use it. And so therefore, I have been uh, creating different platforms such as this to get that out there to the masses because, yes, we are being lulled to sleep. I mean, you, I mean, look, you look at this, this whole social media, right? You, you know, social media is a gift and a curse because, you know, if you use it properly, it can be the best thing since, <laughs> and I don't want to say sliced bread because that's such a cliche, <laughs> but, you know, if used properly, it can help you change the world, but if misused, it just like anything else, you know. And and if misheard and misread, I mean, you, you have to understand. We've been. You look at a genre like rap. Let's take rap for example, right? And how rap started and where it came from and the origin of it and what it is today and what they're still calling it today, because what's happening is not what rap is. What a lot of these these guys consider hip hop, or what a lot of these guys consider rap, and what they're doing, you know, they 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 see the power in us. We just don't see the power in us. They've seen the power in us for a long time, and they said a long time ago, we're gonna do whatever we need to do by any means necessary to stop that. And what Malcolm was saying and a lot of our leaders were saying was we need to do whatever we need to do by any means necessary to not allow that to happen and to continue to not drink the Kool-Aid, uh, to not take the red pill in the matrix. <laughs> um, so, so yes, being a part of this, uh, I, you know, and I think that's the thing what most people are probably realizing now that they are seeing who Carl Payne is and hearing who Carl Payne is. You know, they look at a show like Martin and think, oh, damn, Cole, you stupid. Yeah, Cole was naive, but Carl Payne is not. Carl Payne is definitely woke. Carl Payne is definitely not stupid because it takes a very smart person to play stupid. You know, media is controlled. It's controlled. Media is controlled, every aspect of it, from from newspapers to television shows to the information that is disseminated to the information that is being given to you that you're swallowing and eating every day. And even in music, 
even in the music and the television shows. Look at these agendas. Look at the things that they're showing on these television shows that they're shoving. That was that was taboo yesterday. We're a hypocritical country is what we are. We're a bunch of hypocrites. You talk about this on one end, but every single thing that you you allow in green light and green, you know, to show on television is is preaching the exact opposite of what you're saying is taboo. It's preaching the exact opposite of what you're saying is wrong with this country. Or what you know, I mean, listen, we we took five thousand steps back in the last ten years than we have ever done. I mean, we were on a trajectory, we were on a path. Say what you want. You know, the Cosby show, for example, was the, the, the jump off. It was the precipice for where we should be in television and with regards to black images and his and, and images of us. And now look where we are. Well, look, well look, let me say this to you. So when they had that big, I think it was a writer's strike back, I don't know how many years ago, it was the opening door to reality. When you talk about dumbing down a fucking society and of course. It's the folk that watch that shit. I mean, there's a bunch of, you know what, dude, let me say this to you. I was, I was in Jersey. My family, my, my, a lot of my family's in Jersey. And this is probably about five or six years ago. And I'm hanging out with my niece, maybe a little bit longer. And there was some shit on called, I think, the Real Housewives of New Jersey. And so for like, I don't know, five or six hours, I'm sitting there with my niece, who was a teenager at the time, watching the Real Housewives of New Jersey. Most Wait, of now, you, now you have to say, now you have to couple that with none of them were wives at all. Or even from New Jersey. Let's just go there. Okay, go on. Okay. Uh, all right. But they were playing it up like they were wives, married to these gangsters and all that sort of stuff. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying this has got to, this is a tragedy, tragedy. And my niece, who at the time I think was 15 or 16, is loving this shit, man. I mean, this was like, this was like her world, you see, you know? And so we have dumbed down society by these messages that we are sending out. Our music. Like when rap first came into being and shit with the Sugar Hill Gang and back then when they were giving some messages, was a cool thing, you know? And then it morphed into gangster rap. And now when I listen to I'm in the car with my kids, I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about, frankly, in these messages. But all I'm hearing over and over again is like, yo, let me fuck you. Uh, let me fuck you. Let me fuck you this way. Let me fuck you that way. Let me fuck you. And let me do all the drugs in the world. And let me do the drugs. Let me do the drugs. Exactly. Let's, you know? And so what is this saying to our kids, man? You see? Now... Uh, it, it, it's just it's a it's a crazy dynamic, and if we don't find a way to change that dynamic, our kids are, their brains are being polluted with this nonsense, yo. You see, and so that's why I asked being in the media and all that sort of stuff. You're right. The Cosby Show was a great thing to be followed by nonsense. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you have. You know, Maury or Jerry Springer. I mean, who the fuck are these people, man? I mean, they get on TV, whether it's black or white, and they just act a fool. And yeah. this is TV. I remember when you couldn't swear on TV. I used to be a DJ when I was in college. You yeah. couldn't play oh, yeah. right. Every oh, other yeah. word was, you know, some curse word. Now it yeah. don't matter. You know, it's crazy, bro. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. All right. Final thoughts. Final thoughts so, before we get up out of here. Got it. Yep. Sip time. Hold on. I'm going to take you on that one, too. Mm-hmm. My man. <clears throat> Final thoughts. What would you like to leave the people with today? So, look, man, like I said, I'm an eternal optimist, man. And I do believe that if we get our collective heads together and recognize the the, the, the evils in our country, in our society, 
and globally. I think we can do something about it. But as you mentioned a while ago, it can't be a one-day thing or a one-week thing. It's got to be a consistent thing. And I look, I love my black brothers and sisters, you know, um, and I think that we can do great things, but we have to. We have to be concerned about this. Mm. We have this with some serious conviction to say that we are going to change the dynamic, not necessarily for ourselves right now, but for your kids and your grandkids and their kids. That's what we have to do, people. And here's the thing. I work in the correction system. We have to find a way to keep our youth out of the criminal justice system. We have to. We, the intellectual, you should see the intellectual prowess that's living at my facilities right now. These are some of the most creative people I have ever had the opportunity to work with, but they're in jail. And so their path was a lot different than yours, Carl, and a lot different than mine. And so, you know, it can't be a crabs in a barrel thing where we make it and we close the door. We make it, we got to reach back, Carl, and grab a brother or sister and pull them forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But tell them the price for me bringing you forward is that you got to reach back and pull another brother or sister forward. And so I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. And I've seen you on TV, man. You know, I, 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 I like your work. You know, I've enjoyed this conversation, you know, uh, with you tonight. And I think that as long as, you know, you and I keep preaching the messages of uh, self-improvement, uh, I think that we have a shot, man. I think that we have a shot. But it ain't going to be an overnight thing. We didn't get this fucked up overnight, and so we're not going to get out of this overnight. But I think it can be done, Carl. I really do. Amen. Amen to that. Um, uh, to just piggyback on what you were saying, uh, you're right. It's it's not going to happen overnight, and we have to have as much skin in the game as possible. As times are rapidly changing, seemingly right before our eyes, I mean, we, we have to – we're having to adjust our approach for our fight for equality. Past leaders have definitely mapped out the route. However, as we travel along on our journey, we have to adapt to the circumstances. We have to continue with the mindset of resilience and insert ourselves even more so into the system than ever before in order to truly infiltrate and not only demand, but create the change that we want to see for ourselves. There it is. There it is, my brother. There it is. Here is the lesson. Black Arm of the Law. Stephen Tompkins, y'all. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.